I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. 87% of all women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have a single first degree relative with breast cancer and about 80% don't have any. Those are phenomenal, with- phenomenal stats right there. Right? It shows you, okay, wait a minute. If I can't blame my parents, if I can't blame genetics, <laughs> yeah. what or who can I blame? And it turns out, you know, you're yeah. looking at her in the mirror and that is not meant to vilify or um, make someone feel solely responsible, but rather to empower women to realize, wait a minute, you're saying I have a hand in this. <laughs> it's like, oh, sister, you have such a stronghold on this disease. If you have no idea, I want you to get an idea right now. Season three of the Plant Strong podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season, we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get Plant Strong together. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Funk. She is a board-certified breast cancer surgeon and physician, a best-selling author of the book, Breasts, the Owner's Manual, an outspoken women's health advocate, a regular feature on shows like Good Morning America, and best known as the breast surgeon who treated both Cheryl Crow and Angelina Jolie, this passionate doctor's mantra is God, family, and kill cancer. For the majority of her career, she thought she was doing all she could to help women fight the battle against breast cancer. But 18 years into her practice, she found herself confronted with a new truth. She learned that nutrition, specifically plant-based nutrition, undisputedly plays a huge role both in a person's predisposition to get breast cancer and in their ability to fight it. And once she discovered the truth, she wasn't afraid to do an about 180, both personally and professionally, and she literally emptied her fridge and changed her patient protocols to advise a whole food plant-based diet as the best means to live optimal lives and to thrive. This interview will empower you with facts and research, and it will debunk so many of the myths that we hear all the time, like, what about soy? 
or alcohol or underwire bras. Dr. Funk not only embraced the truth, she has been on a mission to share it with the world. Please share today's episode with one of the millions of people that you know that have been touched by breast cancer. Thanks. I have to say that I am so excited about having Dr. Christy Funk on the podcast. Uh, I first heard about Christy, actually, believe it or not, through my sister, Jane, and my mother, Anne. Jane was holding a conference, I think it was last year, mm-hmm. uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease and Cancer for Women Conference in Cleveland, Ohio. And you flew in from L.A., uh, and Jane and Ann said you were such an amazing hit. You had have such a presence about you, and you came with these crazy hair extensions. I think <laughs> I don't have them in today, but oh. I did put them in your mom's hair and took a picture. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what they were saying. And before long, you know, you were taking them out of your suitcase and you know <laughs> dressing up at Ann, and, and what a blast it was. So you just you just drove in, if I'm not mistaken, you were just performing a mastectomy, right? I was, or, yes. Y- yep, yep. And uh, anyway, so appreciate you like making time for this. Um, so in in the opening of your book, and I just want to show it to everybody. It's called Breast: The Owner's Manual. It came out in 2018, so it hasn't been out long at all. Right. Um, you. Actually, before I say this, let me just say, is your favorite color pink? <laughs> My sister's always shocked by that. When I grew up, it was only like black and brown and gray, but I ha- it, pink has grown on me. Okay. I would say blue is my favorite color. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, uh, and why lemons on the front? What is you know, it about I the lemon? Like lemons are innocent um, and cheerful and don't have that ominous presence of like, dun, 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 this could be breast cancer. So it kind of demystifies breasts in this way and presents them in a sunny light that makes you want to learn more. Yeah. And it also has that connotation of making lemons out of, lemonade out of lemons um, when life hands you a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Um, So in the opening of the book, you and I love this, you basically say that uh, after your relationship with God, the next most important things that you care about are your family and then killing cancer. Um, You are like laser focused on this. Tell me this, because in season three, what we're really focusing in uh, on is kind of courageous truth seekers that are paving a better way for all of us. And I really believe that and know that you're doing that. What led you, Christy Funk, to being a, a breast surgeon and medicine? This is sort of a circuitous route, to say the least. So I always thought I'd be an actress. And I was studying drama theater uh, at Stanford University and psychology. So I was doing a double major. And in the very end of my sophomore year, I was studying for a neurobiology final. It was like the hardest test I ever had taken in my life. And I was up really late. So it was about two, three in the morning. I'd never pulled an all-nighter before. And it was not an audible voice, but it was very clear to me later that it was the voice of God overtaking my thoughts. And it simply said, you're going to be a doctor. And I was like, huh. I might marry a doctor, but no, not going to be a doctor. And I couldn't shake this thought so much so that um, about three days later, I was on a plane to Africa. I already had had a plan for the whole summer to be a short term missionary in Kenya, teaching uh, religion classes out in the bush. So there I was sitting in a dung hut with a dirt floor and really was blown away by the absolute joy these children had around me. They had nothing in terms of possessions. They had very little in terms of food. They didn't even have toothbrushes, but they had their health. Mm. They were healthy and they had joy. And it really impressed upon me in that moment that I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people achieve optimal health so that disease and illness and stress and pain wouldn't rob them and steal them from their joy. 
And so I didn't about face. I went back to Stanford, started in on biology and um, all, this, all the math and science that I needed to get to med school. And then I thought my vision had been pediatrics. I loved kids and I loved drama. So I was going to create like this psychodrama way of creating therapy for children through expression of, of art, et cetera. Well, okay, my first rotation through pediatrics, that was gone. <laughs> Not interested in pediatrics, but I fell in love with surgery. It was actually the very first thing I did and trauma was what I did for two months straight. Um, and I thrived on it. I loved mm -hmm. being presented with an acute problem, creating a solution and moving on. The irony eventually becomes that I focus in on surgical breast oncology, which you do zero in on a critical moment and to the best of your ability, fix that and recreate a new path. But I never let go of these patients. I see them every six months or annually forever. I have these long lasting relationships that kind of inherent into a lot of surgeon personalities. You don't want that. You kind of want to be like, I fixed you, goodbye. Um, but now I just have the most thriving career with this massive just army of loving women who I get to grow old with. And it's so exciting to me. So what has, um, has your practice changed much or your um, popularity since Sheryl Crow and Angelina Jolie? I mean, is that, um, it seems to me like you are like the star breast surgeon probably in the United States now. I mean, has is, is your life just been crazy since then? Honestly, no, but it is true that most of us doctors toil away in relative anonymity, right? And so I was thrust into the spotlight, particularly when Angie wrote her op-ed, which connected directly to Pink Lotus and to me, um, like with a link. So it became this undeniable connection. What it's really done is kind of vetted me in a way that nothing else can. So that actually everyone's it's more often than you would think people actually don't google i guess and they don't know that about me it's not like i have it on my website or advertise yeah. like i was this surgeon so they'll come into the office and i am 51 but they're very sweet to think i look young enough to have to ask me so have you done a lot of these operations <laughs> yeah so that that always cracks me up but i would say it's not that I soared in popularity. People don't necessarily flock to a breast surgeon unless she is needed. So I think I'm in a lot of people's back pockets. I will hear that too. Like, oh, I heard your name five, six, seven years ago and I tucked it away in here. Should I ever need it? And then that day comes along and there they are. Well, but so you just said though, they don't come to somebody like yourself uh, unless they need it. But I want you to go through with, with me and the listeners, what are some of the numbers right now surrounding, you know, women and their chances of getting breast cancer uh, and the average age that a woman gets breast cancer? Because to me, it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of, it's kind of crazy. It is crazy, uh, especially when you compare it to men. So the biggest risk factors for getting breast cancer are being a woman. One in eight women will get breast cancer in her lifetime. And that's as opposed to men. 1.3 in 100,000 men get breast cancer and aging. So that one in eight stat means about a 12.5% chance of getting breast cancer. But it's not 12.5% every day of your life. So age has a lot to do with it. The median age for breast cancer in the U.S., meaning half occurs at or above and half occurs below, is 62, mm -hmm. which is older than many people think. And the reality is when you're in your 20s, you don't have a 12.5% chance. It's not one in eight 20-somethings get breast cancer. In fact, it's one in... 1,479 20-somethings. And if you're 30, it's one in 209. And if you're 40, between 40 and 50, it's one in 65. And when you add up all those one-ins, yeah. then you end up with one in eight. Right now, uh, there are about 3.5 million women who have had or have breast cancer. So there are a lot of women thriving, having had it in the past and a lot dealing with it now. And that's owing to earlier detection and better treatments. The fact that over 1.2 million women though have died from breast cancer since 1970 also speaks to the fact that we have a long way to go. Uh, one thing I hear a lot, which is very false, is that, oh, it seems to be getting more and more common. Like it's just ubiquitous now and getting younger, right? 
Well, no. So only 5% of all breast cancer happens in women under the age of 40. And that's a stat that's been rock stable since 2005. Wow. What has changed is, is social media and you and me doing this podcast and making the word breast not taboo to say in an educational format anyway. And so people suddenly say because of Facebook know about a friend's friend whose daughter is 20 and has breast cancer. And so that person you never would have heard about even 12, 15 years ago. So now it's coming around to be seeming more common. In reality, the breast cancer rate in the US does go up every year, but it's 0.3% since 2012 mm-hmm. and only in women over 50. So it's like a tiny amount that you wouldn't actually pick up on your little brain computer, but it is going up a little bit. So that's kind of the pervasiveness of the of the problem right now. The big um, shock for people is to find out this stat. Only five to 10% of all breast cancer can be attributable to inherited genetic mutations. So you mentioned Angelina, she had a BRCA or BRCA1 mutation. That is the most common, uh, the one that people know about most commonly, but there are a handful, about 11 different mutations, CHECK2, PALB2, that elevate breast cancer risk substantially. However, only five to 10% of all breast cancer is because of that. In fact, 87% of all women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have a single first degree relative with breast cancer, and about 80% don't have any. Those are phenomenal, phenomenal stats right there. Right? It shows you, okay, wait a minute. If I can't blame my parents, if I can't blame genetics, <laughs> yeah. what or who can I blame? And it turns out, you know, you're yeah. looking at her in the mirror and that is not meant to vilify or um, make someone feel solely responsible, but rather to empower women to realize, wait a minute, you're saying I have a hand in this. And it's like, oh, sister, you have such a stronghold on this disease. If yeah. you have no idea, I want you to get an idea right now. So we've got five to 10% genetic. I'm going to throw in a generous five to 10% wacky, right? Like fate, right. like she's only 22. She hasn't even lived long enough, badly enough for her genes to go wacky, but there's no mutation, like inexplicable. Okay. So we've got ends of a bell curve. One's a gene mutation. One's hard to explain. That gives me a super fat 80 to 90% of all breast cancer in the middle of this bell curve that I know for a fact because of my research steeped in science, I can prove to you that it has to do with the daily choices you make every time you lift fork to mouth. Your diet and nutrition matter and your lifestyle. We're talking alcohol, exercise, obesity, hormone replacement therapy, environmental toxicities, emotional stress, all of these things to a better rather than lesser degree are completely under your control. Well, and and that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into some some of those things. Absolutely. Um, But I I find it amazing that you're saying that 90% of these risk factors lie within your hands, right? Right. And again, it's not meant to condemn you. It's meant to empower you to make you realize, wait a minute, I have the upper hand here, gene mutation or not, you can make a radical difference inside the very cell microenvironment. It's called the tumor microenvironment. Think of it like a little bathtub that your cells sit in. And every day, what you think and don't think, what you eat and don't eat, what you do and don't do are changing what is in that little bathtub, soaking up into Mm -hmm. a cell, pro-cancer or anti-cancer, you're choosing. Because the tub is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can we can we combat some myths that are swirling around out there before we jump into some of the you know best ways to prevent breast cancer? Um, what do you see? I mean, you mentioned genes, right? And you know how genes, especially even if you just have the the uh, BRCA one, it's responsible for what five to ten percent of all breast cancer. Right now, if you cancer. have that gene, it can be very significant, like 87% lifetime chance of breast cancer, far cry from 12.5 that we were talking about for all women. So if you have a gene mutation, there are definitely choices to be made between upping the ante with breast surveillance or getting very maximally risk reducing with very aggressive with surgery, removing breasts, removing ovaries, et cetera. But that is a small subset of breast cancer patients. But what about stuff, and I think you mentioned it in the book, like 
bras and cell phones and can you actually catch breast cancer, stuff like that? Yeah, those are, it's fun to debunk myths because people, I believe, get a little, um, they, they get paralyzed by thinking that every little thing that they think and do and breathe might contribute to cancer. Mm. When in fact, some of the most basic things we do on a daily basis contribute not at all. So you mentioned them like bras, underwire or not, I don't care, whatever you want to do in terms of support, I support you. Uh, but <laughs> there's, this has been very well studied. And I will say, and I explain it in the book all throughout chapter two, these theories aren't out there uh, because they're insane. Like for example, bras, maybe the metal in an underwire, the aluminum in an underwire, could, maybe that could absorb into your body or conduct electromagnetic fields, or maybe the bra could be too tight and constrict lymphatics and then lymph fluid, which has toxins can leak into the cells and damage them. Like I, I actually, can understand why some of these theories are propagated, but then I debunk them all with science because it just doesn't have any basis in physiology. Mm -hmm. People get fearful about cell phones. They tuck them in their bra, you know, when they're busy and they want to be hands-free and they worry like, Hey, I tucked it in my left bra cup all the time. And now I have left breast cancer. Did that contribute? And no, it didn't because that's non-ionizing radiation. Uh, the same with electromagnetic fields, not strong enough to damage DNA and make breaks happen. Same with microwaves and infrared. Uh, coffee is a big one that I hear about because coffee actually has a breast effect on some women and that is to cause a little bit of swelling, breast cysts or pain, mm -hmm. none of which is cancer, none of which predisposes you to cancer. And in fact, a bunch of the studies show it's a fair amount of coffee. It's literally five cups a day, but it drops breast cancer risk to have the methylxanthines in coffee, apparently. So that's another myth I like to bust. Um, what about uh, piercing and tattoos? So piercing, completely safe. Nipple piercing, all of that. Trauma, there's no association like between a big car accident and you get a bruise on your breast and future breast cancer. But tattoos are a little bit on the, we're not entirely sure. I will tell you that every time I do an operation on somebody who has upper body art, so tattoos on her chest or arms or neck, there is tattoo pigment visible in the lymph nodes. Mm. They can see it under the microscope and I can usually see it with my eye. It stains the lymph node. So it gets into your lymphatics. What it does there, nobody knows. So the official party line is to think before you ink. When it comes to breast cancer, a lot of patients who have to have their nipples removed with mastectomy will opt, instead of reconstructing the nipple with skin, they'll do a 3D tattoo. And um, it's just recommended that the caution is to think before you ink. Yeah. I don't think it's very, I don't think there's, certainly there's no causation proved between tattoos and breast cancer. Right. Um, well, since this is the Plan Strong podcast, I think it's really important that we do talk about diet. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of throw it out to you how you want to approach this as far as, you know, the power of plants, what you've seen in your research as far as the reduction of meat, dairy, uh, and, and how you want to present that. But uh, I'd love for, you to, for us to have a conversation about that. Yeah, let's dive in. There's so much to say, and I'm so excited about it because it's powerful and simple and you do it three to six times a day, right? You eat something. When I wrote Breasts, the Owner's Manual, I dove into the nutritional science literally for the first time in my career. As you may know from your dad- How crazy is that? Right? It's, it's, it actually makes me angry yeah. to think- that it could be this important and I didn't hear a peep about nutrition and food and how it impacts health and illness. Yeah. Not a peep throughout all of medical school. And I went to medical school in 1992. And I bring this up because of course, your dad's work was published right around that time. Dean yeah. Ornish's work in The Lancet in 1990. And we knew proof positive because of Dean's work and your dad's work that the power of food can not only stave off illness, but reverse the number one killer of human beings on planet earth, heart disease, right? Like didn't hear about it, never until 2017 when I was doing my own research. And that is how I found Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and all of his work and started watching a few documentaries and understanding things. I actually found you rip on a, on a podcast. Um, it was a Ted talk actually. Oh yeah. 
firefighter talk. And I, I was blown away by how all these people knew what I didn't know. <laughs> so, um, but back to, so I dove into the science literally to prove that the way I ate was correct, which being um, a teen in the eighties meant that I never ate bread, pasta, rice, or potatoes. And it was all kind of low carb, lean meats, chicken, turkey, fish. I seemed to know that red meat was bad. I had been vegetarian when I was 10. Uh, my sister, who's 12 years older than I, became a vegetarian. So when I was 10, so did I. And then when I was 16, she went back to eating meat. So to prove that I'd kind of grown up and become my own kid, yeah. I stayed vegetarian until I was 30. Then I was in my surgical residency. All of us were getting too chunky and I challenged everybody. Atkins was all the rage. I know this is horrible. I challenged everybody to Atkins. Um, everybody sort of tried and then everybody gave up except for four guys and me and we made it a month. The challenge was a month. Well, I was so stinking hungry that I went back to eating lean meat and cheese yeah. because I needed to eat something. I didn't poop for a month, but I started <laughs> eating that stuff and um, everybody lost. The boys lost 40, 20, 10 and five pounds and I gained three. So that backfired. But anyway, back to uh, <laughs> back to I was going to the science to prove, though, that that still was a proper way to eat Mediterranean diet style. Right. <sighs> Mind blown, as my kids would say, because not only did I stumble across study after study after study proving the deleterious connection between animal protein and animal fat consumption and the cellular response that I'm talking about with the tumor microenvironment. What is that response? Well, it's to elevate estrogen levels. Estrogen feeds and fuels 80% of all breast cancer. It elevates growth factors, in particular IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, which is the big daddy of them all, right? Screaming at everything in your body to grow, which was super useful if you're a kid trying to become an adult and grow. And also we turn over a shocking 50 billion cells a day. So thanks to IGF-1, those cells get replacing, but your body is super smart and in balance. Your brain tells your liver just how much IGF-1 we need. And the only thing that can make an excess of IGF-1 yeah. is to consume animal protein and animal fat up goes the igf1 and now it's screaming like the day's work was done we turned over the cells but it's just yelling grow grow so you grow atherosclerotic plaque you grow fat you grow cancer grow into a big mass grow into the liver into the lungs metastasize without igf1 you might never ever have cancer mm. two studies point towards this. One is to examine people with Laren syndrome. Are you familiar with Laren syndrome? Well, I am because I read it in your book, but otherwise, oh, okay. no. <laughs> right. So this is a people largely located in Ecuador and they don't have receptors for IGF-1. Yep. So they have medical dwarfism. They don't grow. But drum roll, you ready? No one in the history of the world with Laren syndrome has ever, ever had breast cancer. In fact, only one person reported in 2017 had ovarian cancer. That's it for cancer. That's how important mm -hmm. IGF-1 is to causing cancer. No one with Laren syndrome also has ever, ever had type two diabetes. Hmm. So without, without excess IGF-1, it just actually might be hard to die. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's <Right>. a, <laughs> so eating meat, protein and fat, elevates estrogen, elevates IGF-1, and it creates something called angiogenesis. So this is not like a missed book in the Bible. Angio means blood vessel and genesis birth. So it's the birth of new blood vessels that every single cancer, if it intends to get beyond the size of the tip of a ballpoint pen, mm -hmm. every cancer must create its own blood supply to bring itself the nutrients it needs to multiply and divide. And then eventually, boop, escape route straight through that same blood vessel, straight to your liver or lung or bone or brain. Mm. So angiogenesis is created by eating these foods, which all together tumbles into a sea of inflammation, immune system dysfunction, free radical damage, DNA mutations, and then voila, the stage is set. So that's one half. Here's the other half that again, blew my mind. It's not just that animals are so deleterious to your cell function. It's that plants 
Yeah. So helpful and healthful, right? Like literally the list I just gave you goes in the opposite direction. Again, you are seasoning that tumor microenvironment, that little bathtub with now anti-estrogen power, anti-IGF-1 power, anti-angiogenesis, anti-inflammatory, anti-free radicals, literally from plants, particularly whole food plants. You and I both know in your engine two line is just so beautiful with the lack of, of oils and yeah. excess salt, et cetera. So you can, you can definitely be a terrible uh, vegan, not, well, I don't mean not a judgment on you as a human, but you can eat poorly <laughs> as a vegan with Oreos and beer, but um, true whole food plant-based eating has such power in it. There's a lot I could go into here and, and debunk, but there's one study in particular that I love to tell patients and I'll tell you now, because to me, it's, it's eyes wide open for a woman who's maybe 64 years old on the fairly chunky side, which uh, 72% of Americans are overweight or obese. That's a standalone risk factor for breast cancer. So she may be a little bit chunky. Now she has breast cancer. Maybe she drinks alcohol, like a glass of wine every night. And she's like, look, doc, I hear you, but it's too late for me. Like, look at me. Oh, no, 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 no. And this is what I tell them. There's a study that took 50 obese women. They didn't have cancer. They just were overweight, drew their blood, checked the IGF-1 levels, checked the IGF-1 binding protein level, which is like a body snatcher that retires IGF-1 from circulation. Mm -hmm. And they took their blood, dripped it on a Petri dish, blanketed with fresh human breast cancer cells. A few cells died because they have a functional immune system. They're alive. So some cells died. Now the ladies went away and they had to follow the Pritikin plan. So it was a low fat, high fiber, vegetarian, whole food plant-based diet. This one was not vegetarian. That's Dean's one. Um, Whole food plant-based diet and daily exercise, which was just 30 minutes a day. And for some of them was sauntering, seriously. Like we're not talking pumping iron and getting super sweaty. How long did they go away for? 12 days. 12 days, whole food plant-based diet, high fiber, low fat, daily exercise, come back, draw the blood. IGF-1, plummeted. Binding protein, skyrocketed. And here's the best part. They took a fresh sample of blood on a fresh Petri dish of human breast cancer cells and 90% of the cells died on the spot. Mm. They transformed their blood into a cancer kicking machine in less than two weeks. And I liken it to people who they're like, really, can your body be that forgiving? Can it transform that fast? It's kind of like all your life, someone's like blown smoke in your face from a cigarette. Like you don't know any different, but how long would it take before they just stopped and disappeared before you'd be like, what's that? (laughs) It's fresh air. Wouldn't take long at all. And it's the same with the transformation that happens inside your body. When you transform when you transfer eating protein from animals to eating protein from plants. At Strong, our mission is to educate and empower people to enhance their health by following something as simple and profound as a whole food, plant-based lifestyle. Transitioning from the standard American diet to a plant-strong lifestyle is an absolute game changer and will be one of the best decisions you ever make in your life. Our team works to innovate smart solutions to make this way of life delicious, simple, and absolutely convenient. Be sure to visit our website at planstrong.com where you'll find recipes and educational content, plus our free Plan Strong Challenge, our meal planner, group coaching programs, and access to our plant strong foods. Live your life in full color and discover the joy. Visit plantstrong.com today and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. It's just incredible. And so I was so blown away by what my research, it was a daily dive for like 15 hours a day. And about three weeks into it, I was like, I I can't take another bite of salmon. And I went downstairs and I have, um, Andy and I have, <laughs> I exclude him from, I have three kids. Yeah. We have three kids. Um, and at the time they were literally just a couple days past, um, they just turned eight triplets. And I 
go running downstairs. I'm like, boys, boys, come here. And they come running over to the fridge. And with great panache, I fly open the doors and I say, boys, we're going vegan. And they were like, yeah, what is vegan? <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, we just turned on a dime. I emptied out four bagfuls to the brim of like my manchego, my five-year-age gouda, my therapy drawer of cheese, a big salmon filet. Then you go into the freezer and you're like, oh, organic vegetarian, um, you know, veggie burgers, milk, cheese in it, right? It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Fill yeah. up all these grocery bags and... Um, well, truth be told, my parents are 90 and they live a mile away and we brought the bags to them. And I was like, here, it's too late for you. I'm kidding. I don't think it's too late for them. But honestly, you know, that age, they're depression babies. They would never have spoken to me again if they knew I threw away that perfectly good carcinogenic food. <laughs> <laughs> now, did Andy, was it was Andy on board with this? 100%. So Andy, uh, you'll appreciate this. He does full Ironman races. He was oh. ranked fifth in his age group. Um, and so he was a serious athlete, is a serious athlete, and does Ironman yeah. races all the time or COVID be gone, they'll come back. Yeah. And he's born and raised in Germany where he had a much healthier diet um, as a child. His mom was always really alternative minded. Anyway, so before I called the boys over to the fridge, I wanted to run it by him. I'm like, you know what? I can't, I need to eat plant-based. And this was his response. Oh, Thank goodness. I never ate so badly until I met you. <laughs> I was like, huh? And you've been together for how long now? 12 years? Oh, it's like 15 years now. So it was 12 years at the time. <laughs> well, and, and what do your, your, you have triplets, you said, right? And they're right. boys? Yes, they're and, all boys. And do they love being plant-based? Are they, they all about it? Love, they love it. So what I did is I had them watch, um, you know, all the typical Netflix movies to yeah. understand why. And so at first it was all about our own health. It was more egocentric. That was my motivation. But it's you're hard pressed not to immediately start understanding how dramatically you're affecting your carbon footprint and climate change, not to mention animal cruelty. Yep. And it just, I mean, it's just an avalanche effect from there on the good that you do by eating whole food plant-based. But the kids had that kind of global view of the benefits because mm. we watched the Netflix stocks and within a week they would come home and be like, mom, so-and-so at school has Lunchables every day. She's still <laughs> gonna get diabetes. I know. Did, <laughs> did, you, uh, did you share with them uh, the game changers? I did. We watched okay. that. Yes. And yeah. you executive produced it. Thank you for doing that. I, yeah, I, I had a small role. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a great, great documentary uh, so that we great. got out there. Um, all right. So let's get back to, um, so you talk about something in your book, like for example, um, Zeranol, if you remember Zeranol. And oh, yeah. How, yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you uh, let people know what that is and where they can find that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Let me tell you about Zeranol. So Xeranol is um, the most potent estrogen mimicker that man has ever made. And they inject it behind the ear into every uh, cow that's born that needs to get fat fast in time for slaughter, which is in about 18 months and we need to be 1500 plus pounds. So it is the biggest growth promoter and it literally has a hundred thousand times the estrogen mimicking potency of the BPA in plastic. Mm. So there are many women out there who are like, oh no, 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 I never drink out of plastic water balls with <laughs> their beef burger. So organic beef doesn't have xeranol. The grass fed is plus or minus, could be. Um, and everybody else is. So everybody else is literally 94% according to my research of the cattle raised in the United States. Yeah. So basically every beef burger is chock full of Xeranol, but the plot thickens. So in 1981 in Milan, all these little boys and girls, three to 10 years old started sprouting breasts in 1981. And they tracked it back to the Xeranol in beef. Mm. And in 1987, they decided citing its ill effects on human, uh, its a potential to be a carcinogen. They eliminated all use of Xeranol in the entire, what is now the EU. 
and they banned the importation of all beef from the U.S. and Canada. That ban is in effect today because we still have all our beef chuck full of xeranol. So as usual, when it comes to environmental carcinogens and additives in our food, the EU is way ahead of us in identifying some of these sinister compounds. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's absolutely some crazy, crazy stats. And the fact that you earlier said that estrogen is responsible for 80% of breast cancers. And this has, did you say the 100,000 times the yes. estrogen effect of? BPA and plastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then what about people that are women in particular that are, are afraid that they're edamame or they're, you know, their tofu or their tempeh, um, you know, may have some sort of estrogen causing effect. This is such a great myth to debunk. And I'm so sorry that I perpetuated this myth for 18 years as a breast cancer surgeon. It, before I wrote my book, I don't, I thought I was super smart, apparently not smart at all, because now I know so much more and I have so much more power to yeah. give women in terms of their control over recurrence. But here's the real deal on soy. Soy, I knew enough to think mm, it's a phytoestrogen. It's a plant-based estrogen. You think, okay, let me back up. 80%, as we've said, of yep. all breast cancers have a little receptor on them for estrogen. When estrogen hits that receptor, it's going to send a signal to the cell to multiply and divide. Estrogen-driven tumors are actually less aggressive and more treatable and curable than cancers without estrogen receptors. But the big beef, the big problem with yeah. soy, or so we thought, was that it, genistein and the other isoflavones are, have the molecular structure of estrogen such that they could fit into that receptor and then cause that downstream reaction of making it multiply and divide, or so we thought. This was Petri dish stuff. This was rats and mice kind of research. Until 2009, we didn't have human studies. And since then, this is gonna blow the lid right off of all the soy myths. Now we know there are two estrogen receptors in your body, alpha and beta. Alpha is on the cancer cell. With 1600% more affinity, the genistein in your soy is going to hit beta. And what does beta do? It does two fantastic things. It shuts mm -hmm. alpha down. Ah. So if you're familiar with tamoxifen, which is a drug a lot of breast cancer patients have to take in order to block the estrogen receptor, they block it with a drug called tamoxifen, which is another estrogen lookalike, but deactivates the receptor. Soy deactivates your receptor. Soy also goes out into your peripheral fat cells. Everywhere you have a fat cell, and listen up, because this actually is the direct connection as to why being overweight and obese elevates breast cancer, occurrence, yep. recurrence, and death. So everywhere there's a fat cell, there's an enzyme called aromatase. This enzyme is busy all day converting precursor steroids that come from your adrenal gland, which you're never going to get rid of. So you've always got testosterone, andestrendione. These things are getting converted into estrogen, which can then feed and fuel your cancer. Soy, shoot inhibits the aromatase enzyme, the same as a whole nother category of drugs that we give women. So if this is true, the study should point toward decreases in breast cancer. And in fact, we've got amazing studies with high volume of women. One of them is the Shanghai Women's Study, 73,000 Chinese women, those who were the highest versus lowest soy consumers had 59% less premenopausal breast cancer. Now, this is an interesting thing about these studies that I'll run through. When I say high versus low soy consumption, yeah. for the most part, we're talking 1.5 servings a week oh. versus less than that. It's not even, I advocate for two to three servings a day, which also slashes prostate cancer by 70%. Okay, so another really great study because it was in American Asian women, but still Asian. So I'll, I'll get to multi-ethnic, but- I can't for, believe how, how well you know your studies. I mean, it is, it is really remarkable. And I guess, oh, I guess you use it to back up everything you say. I do. I like to be bulletproof, which, um, <laughs> which is why the book. So when I went into the science on soy, that's when I realized I was so embarrassingly wrong. I went to pull the studies to prove that I was right, that you should spit the miso out of your mouth. So it does make me delightful to be married to, because I like to be right all the time, but it did, <laughs> it did make me into the doctor that I am today. That, that, yeah. I must be backed in science in, if I'm going to publish this out in the world. So the other big study that I loved about showing that 
soy decreases breast cancer occurrence is in American Asian women. And they, again, only had 1.5 servings a week versus less than that. And they had less than 58% adult onset breast cancer. So um, this was uh, in childhood. So if they consumed one and a half servings a week in childhood, they had 58% less breast cancer as an adult. That points toward how important nutrition is in our adolescents. They are so much at the mercy of what is in their own refrigerator at home. They're not old enough yet to really make any thoughtful choices. And we as parents hold all of that power to make their futures as healthy as possible by providing them with these foods. It, the same kind of studies point toward like higher vegetable intake in youth leads to less prostate and colon cancer later. It's just, it's astounding how important good nutrition is at the earliest possible moment, which would be birth. Um, another favorite study because it points toward the power of food, even in the presence of those mighty mutations. So there was a, a study on Korean BRCA mutation carriers, mm -hmm. high versus low soy consumption, 43% less breast cancer in a BRCA carrier. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not ready to say that I can overcome a BRCA mutation by teaching you diet and lifestyle changes, but if we could only get those studies out there, we might be able to create a regimen that doesn't involve removing breasts and ovaries. Right. Um, so all of that that I've just said points toward, okay, if you consume soy, you'll have less breast cancer in your life. But wait, what if you have breast cancer? Now you're getting risky, right? Especially if it's estrogen driven, shouldn't you shy away from soy? So back to our alpha and beta receptors, keep that in mind. And the answer is a shocking, resounding, very loud, no. You want to purposefully consume soy. So mm -hmm. one study looked at estrogen driven to women with estrogen driven tumors on tamoxifen. So they were taking that estrogen blocker and when they had high versus low soy consumption, 60% less breast cancer. All right, maybe it's really all the tamoxifen. Okay, then let's look at another study that is only um, estrogen negative cancers, doesn't care about estrogen at all, or estrogen driven cancers, but they're not taking tamoxifen. This also blew my mind, 32% less mortality. So not just recurrence, a 32% drop in death from breast cancer in an estrogen, estrogen driven tumor just because they ate the soy. Mm. And then there was a 51% drop in the estrogen negative group. So I say that to point toward these anti-neoplastic powers within soy that go beyond the whole estrogen equation. Yeah. And they are anti everything we were talking about. They're anti-angiogenic, anti-inflammatory, and it's all inherent in the soy. So all of the human studies to date show somewhere consistently, it's always around this magic 32% decrease in recurrence and mortality for high versus low soy consumption, but sometimes even higher numbers come up. What's so there you have it. Soy yeah. it up. Yes. <laughs> soy it up. <laughs> Block those hormonally active compounds with the soy. What's your opinion? Because um, in all my books, I talk about how, you know, we, we are fans of soy, but we want it to be in more of its whole state less of its unprocessed state. Do you have an opinion on the, like the soy burgers, the soy dogs, the soy nuggets that are composed of mostly soy protein isolates and concentrates? Yeah, yeah. they've been so divorced from their nutritionally intact components that while it probably isn't the soy protein isolate itself that is going to be harmful, it's everything else that's packed in that because nobody just scoops that out of a jar and eats it, right? It's always with the oils and the other things that are coming in these highly processed um, meat-like substitutes. So for sure, if you want to get all the power out of your soy when it comes to anti-cancer power, yeah. you want to be consuming it. Honestly, these studies were minimally processed, but your typical stuff, we're talking tofu, soy milk, edamame, soybeans. But if you wanna bump it up a small notch, you wanna do the fermented soys, tempeh, miso, natto, and tamari. Uh -huh. They have even more phytoestrogen power in your body. But that's the group, everything I just rattled off, everything else that has soy in it is too processed and is probably not powerful in you anymore. Yep. All right, we just talked about soy. I would love for you to talk about alcohol because it seems like Americans really love their alcohol. There's this whole, you know, French paradox thing, you know, rolling around out there, Mediterranean, I need my glass of wine, you know, for heart health or overall health. Where do you stand? Well, there's no question. I mean, even the IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, 
says that it's a class one carcinogen. So alcohol is a carcinogen. What it does is um, multifold. And when it comes to breast cancer risk, let's, let's kind of zoom in on that. So it creates acetaldehyde, which is a carcinogen. Even if you just like swish and spit that alcohol, you're going to swallow acetaldehyde down and then your liver makes more. So that's not good. It impairs your immune function. So obviously your immune system is going to seek out and tag cancer cells for destruction and it impairs the ability for your yeah. own cells to recognize intruders or morphed cells. And it increases, ready, estrogen levels. So mm -hmm. that's a bad actor as we've just hammered through. But really the main driver from alcohol to cancer formation is that it inactivates an enzyme called MTHFR, which sounds like a super bad word, but MTHFR, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase converts folic acid from a vitamin or folate from your leafy greens into methylfolate. Methylfolate is the active form that babysits the DNA as it divides. So if there's a DNA break or mutation, similar to a BRCA, everybody has BRCA genes, they work when you have a BRCA mutation or when you don't have your methylfolate, the mutation is like, mm, sorry, like good luck with that one. So your methylfolate gets whacked every time you drink. So there's a study, the nurse's health study looked at, um, looked, it had a subset of about 5,000 women that were daily drinkers, one or more drinks a day. And in those who consume 600 micrograms of folate, so it's kind of like enough to overwhelm your impaired enzymes. So you're making enough methylfolate. So all of them are drinkers. Those who had 600 micrograms of folate a day had 89% less breast cancer. Mm. That's how important a driver this whole methylfolate thing is. But what is the true risk to you if you drink? So if we take our teetotaler, our non-drinker, and make her the neutral risk, and then you think about your drink. So five ounces of wine equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor equals 12 ounces of beer. Yep. That's 14 grams. That's a drink. A drink a day increases breast cancer by 10%, two drinks a day, 30%, three drinks a day, 40%, and onwards and upwards from there. So even the American Cancer Society, however, does say that if you choose to drink, so you're not supposed to start drinking because you think it's, you heard it was heart healthy or something like that. But if you are already drinking, they say to limit alcohol to no more than one a day for women and two a day for men. And I would echo that if you choose to drink, Mm -hmm. the, there are a couple of redemptive qualities in and only in red wine. So a four to eight ounces of red wine in some studies has shown actually a decrease in all cause mortality, but more importantly, what's in it is resveratrol, really potent anti-carcinogen. It's very, uh, it's, it's, there are studies in the US right now using resveratrol as a standalone anti-cancer agent. Yeah. So, but you get it out of the skin of red grapes, the kind with the seeds. So you certainly don't need to drink to get your resveratrol, nor do you need to buy a pricey supplement. You just need to chomp on the skin of red grapes. And red wine is an aromatase inhibitor, which if you've been listening thus far, no, that's the enzyme in your fat that's making estrogen. So red wine will actually decrease your estrogen. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of where I stand. So in it, it's best you, not to drink at all. If you choose to drink, I would only favor the red wine. Do you, for, do, you, do you drink at all? I do. We have red wine now and again. Now and again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what's your favorite beverage of choice in your house? Is it good old H2O water? Oh, it would have to be. Yeah. When you put that in the mix, I was about to say green tea. Oh um, yeah. And so why, why do you like green tea? So, Again, you know, when I was doing my research, I real I made me sad that doctors don't know more about the power of food because I think they would really dig it. They would realize that it's chemicals. Mm -hmm. It's the curcumin in turmeric. It's the EGCG in green tea, the epigallo catechin galley. Like these reminds me these words are like organic chemistry all over again, right? The resveratrol in red grapes, the limonene in oranges. They would realize that there are chemical structures in your food. All you do is chew and swallow a broccoli floret and bam, these isothiocyanates become sulforaphane because they mix with an enzyme called myrosinase. Uh, <laughs> doctors would get it. They would be like, they geek out on this stuff if they only knew. And yeah. instead, yeah. instead, I already know from my patients, like, oh, the medical oncologist, 
gives me an eye roll when I talk about your anti-estrogen food list, which by the way, is not just soy, flax seeds, broccoli. I get the whole list, mushrooms. Um, you know, I get an eye roll from my colleagues that I've, I've been practicing with for 25 years and it doesn't really hurt my feelings because I totally get where they're coming from. But anyway, back to green tea, EGCG. There is a really good study. It's in, it's in Asian women because they drink the green tea to prove the point. Um, those with stage one breast cancer who drink three cups of green tea a day have 57% less recurrence and stage mm. two breast cancer, three cups of green tea a day, 31% less breast cancer. That's powerful. And that's just from the tea. Imagine if you just put it all together, yeah. you have the tea with your tofu. <laughs> it, yeah. It's really just astounding to me, but um, I don't actually like green tea. So I have this ancient matcha powder that we actually sell in our online store. Huh? that I scoop into is sourced from Japan, you know, high quality. And I, and I just put it in other stuff like my oatmeal or something that I'll be you know, a smoothie if I make one. So um, I just, I don't really like the taste of tea, but I believe in its power so much that I get that uh, matcha in me every day. Yeah. I am blown away at the breadth of the knowledge that you have at the end of your tongue. I mean, it's crazy, <laughs> especially, especially, the fact that you just really started diving into the nutrition, it seems like a couple of years ago when you were writing your book. Um, you, you, I mean, have you reached back out to or thought about some of your patients, including like Cheryl and Angelina to say, hey, you know what? Uh, or they've probably read your book and they know all about it. Well, Cheryl kindly wrote the forward to the book, so she knows all about it. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it's true. I, I, I try... I generally don't solicit my celebrity patients to yeah. do stuff for me, but it is sort of the way the world works and their platform is so massive that it's, you know, a faster way to reach lots of ears and eyeballs. Um, but I yeah. try to respect that doctor patient relationship and not, I want to be like one of the only people in their lives that didn't ask for a favor back. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, let's, and, and um, we're kind of winding down here, unfortunately, and maybe we'll, I'll have to have you on like for a part two, but what are the, the five, six things that, that women can do um, to help prevent their chances of breast cancer? We've talked about diet, right? Right. So for plant sure, numero uno plant, yes, plant-based, whole food, plant-based diet, tons of um, fruits and vegetables, 100% whole grains, legumes, right? Lentils, beans, peas, split peas. Nuts. Um, Can I stop you for a second? I know it's the anti-nut. What? Let me stop you for a sec. Yeah. Because you, you very cleverly in your book, you put the breast superfoods, like the eight oh. breast superfoods. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Like, yeah. yeah. Lately, I've taken to uh, signing my emails with breast regards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Brilliant. So yes, go get get my book. I recommend that you read it and devour, especially chapters three, four, and five, which are so yeah. empowering with diet and lifestyle choices. But in there is my 10 breast superfoods list, <laughs> which would of course be all plant-based, but there are the tippity top ones, including uh, beans and berries, mushrooms, and certain spices, turmeric, um, yeah. the whole allium family, like garlic and green onions, et cetera. So you want to, that tip one, you said top five or six. So tip one is to eat whole food plant-based and contrary wise to avoid avoid or eliminate all animal protein and animal fat. Number two, Google body mass index, put in your digits and find out if you're too chunky. Cause if you are the, the kind of, there's no fat shaming intended, um, but it's not cute when you're too chubby, it's potentially fatal. Mm -hmm. And especially so when it comes to breast cancer. And it's hard to believe, and it's hard to believe, but you in the book talk about how you used to be a chubster. I was chubby. <laughs> I definitely was chubby. I, in the book, I said, and it's so true. We would go visit my cousins, Marie and Frank in Laguna, and we would drive by where the blimp, you know, that flies in the sky and takes the photos of football games. The blimp was housed there. And my brothers would be like, hey, Christy, there you are waiting for takeoff. Oh. Um, oh. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, uh, you know why? And God bless my parents. And they, we did have fruits and vegetables, lots of them. But at the same time, we literally top shelf in the cabinet, ho-hos, ding-dongs, Twinkies. Yeah. This is how I grew up. My favorite sandwiches were bologna and liverwurst. When I went to McDonald's, I would have a Big Mac and fries. And I, honest to goodness, 
ordered the strawberry shake because I thought it was healthier than chocolate, but I really wanted the chocolate. Okay, right. so that's, you know, I, I ate like that. Uh, so keep your body mass index under 24.9, 18.5 to 24.9. That's the sweet spot. And your whole body will be so much happier if you yep. get to that weight and stay there. Tip three, exercise. How much and how hard? You know what? If you are a couch potato and you just get a cup of coffee and saunter around the block and that's what you can do today, go do it. And that's great. And then try to go half a block more tomorrow. But if you are an exerciser and you want to understand um, what is truly scientifically shown to reduce risk. So I love this one study because it's so, um, it's, it just shows people like anything works. So it took yeah. thousands of postmenopausal women, followed them for 15 years. And those who just exercised for 11 minutes a day, like briskly walked actually was the term, briskly walked for 11 minutes a day, dropped breast cancer by 18%. If you put some pep in your step and you work out moderately for three to four hours a week, you're going to drop breast cancer by 30 to 40%. Mm. And for every hour after four hours, you're going to be dropping your breast cancer risk by 47%. So it's powerful. It decreases estrogen levels and it supports your immune system function are the main mechanisms why exercise decreases breast cancer. Move that body. Exactly. Yeah. Bust a move. So five hours a week, if it's not, if you can carry on a conversation, that's my barometer. Two and a half hours a week, if it's super sweaty, can barely answer, you know, a question. Yeah. So exercise, alcohol, yeah. limit or eliminate it. And the, the biggest one um, to me that is elusive is stress. I want people to become mindful of that mind-body connection. Really, really powerful study, LACE, Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study, followed over 2,200 early stage breast cancer patients for 10.8 years. And they found that those who self-reported low levels of psychosocial support and or a lack of religious affiliation mm -hmm. were 58% more likely to have died in mm. the decade follow-up. Mm. So that's how important connectivity and love and support are yeah. and how stress alters immunity and a lack of feeling important or loved or included really elevates stress. It's that is one of, if not the motivating factor behind what I created called breast buddies. Mm. So every person listening who knows anybody with breast cancer should tell them about this. So it's completely free. It's called breastbuddies.com. And I already have over 5,000 members. And what it does is it, you'll either are a woman who enters herself as you've been there, done that, you've finished all your treatments, or you're newly diagnosed with breast cancer. And the system will pair you age for age, stage for stage, treatment for treatment, like chemo, for chemo, yeah. mastectomy for mastectomy. And everybody is kind of like match.com for breasts. Like brrr, everybody who say is 42, who had a mastectomy and did chemo pops up. And then you can read more and you'd be like, oh my gosh, she has a 10 year old. I want to talk to her and wow. then you can connect. So it's solely for purposes of connection and friendship and support. And again, it's totally free. That's great. The one thing I think that you forgot and I'm just going to bring it up is not yes. to smoke. No oh, smoke. yes, yeah. that's true. Um, you know what, interestingly, the connection between breast cancer and smoking is there, but, but, um, only in like certain circumstances, basically a lot of pre pregnancy smokers will get breast cancer later, Wow. Yeah. um, or, or really heavy, but interestingly, is there something, you know, I, you didn't hear it from me, but the tar is like carcinogenic, but the nicotine is somehow like maybe anti-estrogen like it, it, of all the things smoking does. I mean, it causes every other cancer in every organ in your body and gives you wrinkles so that you look ugly at your own funeral. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have like this really compelling causation to breast of all yeah. things, but, but I agree with you. I mean, don't smoke. This has been an absolute joy, Christy. Thank you for for spending this hour with uh, with me and the Plant Strong podcast. You truly are. You're such a, what I love about what I just heard. I mean, I, I, I read about it in your book, but I'm seeing it now is how you are such a true seeker. And you were, you were not afraid to basically give up the life that you knew and that was very comfortable, right? Uh, and move on to something that, um, 
that was shown that for whatever reason you you know you um you explored it and you discovered it and you owned it and and and, and now you're getting the word out it's so awesome and i really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast but you've uh, really been an inspiration to me from the beginning of my veganism and thank you for creating this season's podcast theme you know of people who are paving the way and i can't wait to see who else you have on <laughs> stay tuned all right, Krista. Hey, will you will you do the sign off with me? Just follow me. All right, ready? Peace. Peace. <laughs> Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Keep it plant strong. All right. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she incredible? As Dr. Funk shared, when you understand the beautiful connection between nutrition and health, it becomes empowering. And I hope that's how this episode has made you feel. Empowered with the knowledge that you have infinitely more control than you ever thought you had. That genetics don't necessarily determine your destiny. And those things that we've been told all of our lives about health and nutrition may simply not be true. The message that I want you to take away from this episode is that it is never too late to make dietary and lifestyle changes and that nutrition can have a dramatic impact on your long-term health, especially as it relates to breast cancer risk. Let's all keep learning and keep truth seeking. And along with fabulous experts like Dr. Christy Funk, we're here to help. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Dr. Christy Funk and her book, Breasts, The Owner's Manual, visit the show notes at plantstrongpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to subscribe, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the great news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything to me. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought to be true? I'd love to hear about it. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.